Here's Frank Beard from Louisville. He's a brass-headed putter. He's a fine putter. Frank strokes it well, too. Oh, oh, you, know, you know, this boy has one of the finest putting Welcome to the Tour Backspin Show. I'm your host, Larry Bosch, and I am so excited to talk to our guest today. I must have read his book, Pro, Frank Beard on the Golf Tour, a hundred times. Frank was an All-American at the University of Florida in 1960 and 1961 before turning professional in 1962. He topped the money list on the PGA Tour in 1969, the year that is depicted in the book, with a total of $175,223. His 11 wins included the 1967 and 1970 Tournament of Champions. After the tour, he played on the Champions Tour and served as an analyst for ESPN. Welcome to the Tour Backspin Show, Frank. Good morning, Larry. Uh, why don't we just jump right in? Turn, turn it on the mic. Whatever you turn on, turn it on. Let's go. Okay, I got it going. And So how did you get started in golf? Your dad was a golf pro, right? My dad was a golf pro. He, he, not as, he was a self-taught golf pro. He wasn't even a golf pro later, but he... Gave some lessons, which is what he then finally got a job teaching at the driving range. But he did a started things. So it was work for Internal Revenue Service, etc. Enough to get me started. You went to uh, Florida, the University of Florida, and you were an All-American there on the golf team. What was college golf like in 1960 and 61? Well, it wasn't like today by any touch. We they play only tournaments today. We played matches. Uh, like I was in Florida, Georgia Tech, and Auburn, which they would be scheduled and they'd show up at our golf course. We'd play them a three-team match. And uh, we did well. We didn't even, uh, I don't even think we had a team. Uh, our tryouts were um, mostly, uh, Tommy Aaron was in front of me. He was a wonderful player and had a scholarship. We were the only two that could play. We always had, our tryouts were all um, fraternity boys. <laughs> they play. <laughs> but uh, we play these matches for six six man matches. And I used to have to go up to the pool room and drag a couple of those fraternity boys out <laughs> to play in the match, so we wouldn't lose. And uh, I went. We went to the SEC tournament every year, and Tommy and I qualified for the. Well, he was only there two years. We qualified for the. I went to the NCAA. We never. I never went with a team. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Always as an individual. Um, so we didn't, we didn't, and we had, a, our golf coach was a, um, a phys ed instructor school who taught handball and played golf, so they, they gave him, and taught golf, so they gave him the golf coach deal, and that was about it. We, I just played golf. 75 or more percent of the golf I played the University of Florida, I played by myself. Huh. And were there some other players that eventually made it out on tour that were at those NCAA uh, tournaments? Uh, well, oh yeah, a lot of them. And, um, uh, right before me, Doug Sanders and um, a fellow named Pat Schwab and a couple others were there. Uh, Dougie being a well-known, and then after me, uh, you could look them up. I mean, from Bob Murphy and Ed North and Gary mm-hmm. Folk. I mean, uh, uh, a new guy came in, took over, was a, 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 an actual coach, and they began to see the value of having a golf team at a school. I think and. Um, you know, just get for notoriety and stuff like that. Because we had players on tour, mm-hmm. and, uh, so um, so after me, there was quite a nice, not quite a nice round of players. I mean, I've become friends with all of them. I just never played with any of them. And then, what year did you go out on tour? Uh, I started. I played the last five tournaments of '62. My first full year was '63. And what was that last tournament in 62 that you played? Was that the Mayfair? It was at Carl Gables. And and that one was uh, an important one to make the cut so that you could make it into the L.A. Open at the that's start correct. of the next... Yeah. That's correct. That was the big prize for young people to make 
young players to make the cut wherever way they're playing on <clears throat> on the previous week that got them into the next tournament free exempt without having the Monday qualify. So that was a huge prize because LA qualifying gave about three spots. Mm-hmm. You know, for I don't know, hundred or so players on the qualify, but you couldn't make it. <laughs> and, so that was a great way to spend the Christmas holidays. So did you uh, qualify for the 63 LA Open? Uh, well, I qualified for Carl Gables. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Okay. And then how did you meet and befriend Tony Lima? Well, Tony was uh, older older than us. Uh, young youngsters playing, we all knew who Tony was. He'd won a tournament too, but he was quite the playboy. And uh, I don't know how... To, far to take that I don't mean right now but I, I didn't even know then what it meant too much he just come to find out he just didn't pay much attention to his golf Look, uh, in relation to the potential and talent he had uh, so he met a gal that he fell in love with married and she kind of straightened him up and from there on until the plane crash um, he did well he won the uh, British Open and uh, served bunch of tournaments and uh, really made a name for himself man we played i played you know tournaments with him but i i was i was not established i mean i wasn't he was very nice to us but i wasn't one of his uh, inner circle so to speak so even after he, he met betty and he achieved some success you wouldn't call him a range rat would you uh i don't think tony was i never paid that much attention um you know, we were playing our own game, and he lived in another world. And even when he was not married and when he was still another, he just kind of lived a party world, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a number of ladies. And, I mean, he never embarrassed himself, I don't think. I never heard, he never got suspended or, you know, for being drunk or anything. I mean, mm-hmm. he was a gentleman always, as far as, I, as far as I was concerned. I never went to dinner with him or anything, so... You've written about how your dad would come out on tour to visit you, and if you were having issues with your swing, he was real quick to point out a solution. Usually got you back on track real fast. Could you talk a little bit about that? Well, he, he had... Um, he, the only two things he really knew and, and were actually the most valuable things I ever got in my life. I was self-taught after that. I, he would help me a little bit, but he uh, showed me the proper grip, which uh, I kept forever, and it was... Uh, very valuable. It's, it's, that's where the club is held, and it's got to be good for everybody. And, but anyway, and then the other word he used was tempo. Uh, and uh, we, we, I can't remember the exact terms he used, but I would come home and and, it's, and it's funk about something. I couldn't. I was having trouble, and he said, "Let's go out to the range." We had a, a night range in Louisville. Rudy's driving range. We'd go out to the night range, and I knew what he was going to say. We'd hit, get out there, and he said, we'd get, he'd take my driver, and he said, I see that 100-yard 100, 100 sign out there. I want you to hit, the, hit that sign uh, on the fly with a full golf swing, not a pitch shot swing, a full driver swing. And, of course, it sailed right over the one, 100, one, maybe it was a 150 mark anyway. It sailed right over it, right straight over it, it hit solid. Because I was, I had applied some tempo. And, and I remembered it on the golf course. I didn't always forget it. But uh, I was I was kind of known, I guess, if anything, as a uh, fellow, you know, some, some of the best tempo on tour. Did you have any trick to keep that tempo? Like a, an internal... No, it was just, uh, we didn't, I didn't know, we just thought about it. Just thought about it, kind of thought about the hitting 150 yards sound a little bit. And, and I'd gotten where I kind of knew the difference just when I got away from it. But um, I, I thought about it and then I'd go home sometime. And how's the tempo? And I said, well, it's pretty good. And he said, well, let's go take a look at it. So it wasn't. <laughs> but he didn't have enough knowledge to go any further. I didn't really. I just was self-taught. I mean, he wouldn't. I, <laughs> The guys that my father would have learned from, the guys that I, if, I, if we had a team, like when nobody had a team, but Nicholas had Jack Brown at the, at Columbus Country Club, I think he was. I can't remember. Maybe Psyota. But, uh, um, and the guys had 
they'd go home and say, see the local pro. We didn't have a team. But the teachers would have existed, that did exist, and would have were taught by people that came out of the wooden shafted days. Yeah. Now, that's, how, that's how old I am. So, <laughs> um, and those teachers were taught because of the shafts, you had to square the club up with your hands. And uh, so that's the way we learned to play. Drive your legs and square the club up with your hands. Hold on to it. Turn, turn it. And it required an enormous amount of uh, timing and tempo. And uh, I would not ever teach anybody. To, well, they wouldn't even bother to take a lesson from me today with my <laughs> golf swing. It was pretty. It was pretty, but it was an incorrect swing. It was inside out too much, and I hit, uh, I don't know if it was a big hook, but it was a hook. And... Uh, out of that evolved all the equipment and today the guys just all they got to do is just take it straight back and straight down and the shaft is it does all the work they don't have to do anything except just swing hard at it with they have their own tempo don't get me wrong it looks like they're swinging hard and fast which they are but it's within it's in sequence and it has perfect tempo mm-hmm. and the reason they hit it further besides the equipment today is they can swing the club faster than we did mm-hmm and uh, except for Nicholas, maybe I don't know what his. We didn't. We didn't keep those. I didn't know what I. I have no idea what my club head speed was when I was playing. So anyway, um, but uh, it was all self-taught. But what we we did, which was very valuable, more valuable than anything, was the, the short game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I used to go out. We had no. Didn't have a range. We just had what they called a shag bag with balls and I had like 50 or 60 balls in there and I'd hit half of them out there with seven iron and just I, I was going to go pick them up half out into this field I had and um, half with a five iron and I'd go throw the bag in between those two kind of dispersions and take my wedge and pitch to the bag so every time I hit 50 or 60 balls out I hit 50 or 60 pitch shots mm-hmm. uh, you know it's, too, it's still too grass and bumps and things but it's just I learned to use the wedge mm-hmm. and became very proficient with it uh, and uh, I don't know just putting I, I, I didn't know what to do with I just putted a bit I just learned to putt well you had to learn that stuff there was no they were teachers were available not to me I, I didn't have any money I, I, if somebody wanted me to give a our local pro gave five dollar lessons all day long on the range, <laughs> <laughs> and he was well known in town. He had, he was the pro at the club, but was uh, very well known uh, for his teaching. And uh, I used to listen to him; he was good. But I never took any. I didn't even have five dollar. <laughs> Plus, I was okay. I was I was winning everything in the state of Kentucky, which sounds like uh, something to be bragged upon. I was proud of my golf. Don't get me wrong. I was. We didn't have anybody else to play. I was the only one that could play. But anyway, I just kind of, I don't know, I just played golf. I just played, I didn't know much about the swing, club head speed, shafts. I had some clubs from Hillary and Bradby. I had a contract with them. And they just, everything just kind of worked. And uh, that was fine until I found the bottle. <laughs> John Barleycorn and I became very, very good friends. And, and I uh, found out you could live, uh, this was all later, I knew this, but you can go a long time when you're young and strong and full of piss and vinegar uh, and still be drinking, but pretty soon it catches up and bites you right in the rear. I never drank on the course, but I caught up pretty quick at 5 o'clock. So. And when when did you give up drinking? Uh, 42, 42 years ago. And you're still active in AA? I'm active. I go almost every morning to AA and, um, and uh, just try to show up and help some of the young guys when I can. Yeah, and I've uh, I've done a few interviews with Al Geiberger and talked to him quite extensively. You were you were quite influential in his turning around from his uh, Ambien. Addiction. Well, his um, I didn't know what he was doing. And, uh, his kids came to me and asked me for help, and I said, "Well, the only way you're going to get him to stop is." an intervention and uh, they didn't know what I, I said and I shouldn't have done it I wasn't trained but I said I'll help you put one on we met him down at the local 
breakfast place, and four, four or five of us, and he walked in, and uh, they had their statements prepared. I knew how to do it. I'd been around long enough to know how to do it. This wasn't trained. And we took him that day down to Betty Ford, and um, he went to a, I'm not sure Al was an alcoholic. I think he was, um, uh, I don't think he was even a drug addict. He became addicted to drugs and maybe some alcohol. Uh, he lived a real tough life. Mm-hmm. He was a good man, and he still is a good man, but he was a, oh my gosh, he was his own worst enemy. Three wives and operations, and he may still have his, his bag today that carries his bladder, whatever you call it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. He was sick all the time. There was a man that if he could have just gotten his first wife and him could have worked, you know, had a good, solid, happy existence that way and stayed healthy but been I mean one of the all time greats he yeah. was a great player and um, I think he was in the Hall of Fame I'm not sure he should be but hey, good man good man yeah I agree you say that you played the game a little bit more intuitively than than uh, than somebody that was uh, totally knowledgeable about the golf swing but what did you think about Tony Lima's swing well it was um it was good. It was very, very much in the realm. It was very handsy, uh, which we were all. Uh, nobody we had. Nicholas came close. Um, Sneed uh, came close. Hogan wasn't close to the swings today of the great players. That we, oh, we were all handsy. That was the way we were taught. Uh, and everybody did that. You released it with the hands, not the body. Uh, you squared it up with the hands, not the, not the body. I mean, I had, I, I never even, Nicholas is the only one that came close to even hitting golf shots. Now, I'm taking into account equipment. He's the only one that came close to hitting balls like um, these young people do today. So high and so far and so straight. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable. And again, I, I take, I give full credit, not full, but a huge amount of credit to the equipment for we had state-of-the-art stuff. We, didn't, we weren't playing with garbage, but, uh, you know, a nice lot of balls and uh, wooden shafts. Well, I mean, wooden, uh, wooden head drivers, mm-hmm. wooden woods, and the irons were uh, beautifully, uh, uh, you know, made. I don't know. It just uh, We had nice stuff, and it was the best you could get. Yeah, those clubs back then were so beautiful, those irons and those persimmon woods. Yeah, the persimmon, if you come across a set of persimmon wood yourself, back in those days, a good solid kind of mint condition, keep them, because it was the best persimmon you could get. Yeah. Powerbilt had a corner on the market with the Mississippi Delta, I'm going to call it, I think that's what I heard it called, where the best persimmon was grown. And um, and there's quite an art to treating the the wood and, and Bring it, keep getting it healthy and ready to go. And we had to keep them oiled, uh, not not oiled oil, but to kind of wipe down, or they'd get dry and crack on you. And um, so you had to take good care of those persimmons. The irons were nice, but they, but they didn't, you know, just keep them clean. And the balls didn't last too long. They they'd scuff and cut and wear out. But that was just what was Bellotta, is what it was. Yeah, there were, there were so many great equipment companies back in that day, that era, that aren't around today in the same capacity, like Spalding, um, Powerbilt, uh, Royal Golf Balls, uh, Dunlap. Um, why do you think those companies fell by the wayside? Was Did they just too slow to uh, well, adapt Power new Bill, technology? Powerbilt is still going, although when the Metal Woods came around, they said nobody, Persimmon will always be in and doing well they were wrong took them 10 years when they finally figured they had better get some metal woods and then all the tech all the great um artists were gone by the end to the other companies some of the new ones but the other come Titleist is the only one that kept going the, the others still have it but back in those days it's like spalding and um, mcgregor wilson they they made hams and pool tables and baseball gloves and everything and golf clubs they, they weren't in the golf club business they were in the sports goods business and and whatever else they needed pool tables and i don't know whatever else 
So they were given, they, you know, they had good equipment and good people. I knew a bunch of them. But you didn't, the only golf ball was Titleist. The rest of them were just a pile of crap. Royal <laughs> made almost everybody's ball except um, Titleist. They made their own. And, um, and this, the Titleist was far and away, far and away better. And of course, everything is caught up even to Titleist today. Their advertising says, well, we're better today. I think people still use them, but they're paying today. They didn't pay. They didn't pay us. Right. The Titleist didn't have a golf club in those. They just the ball. But the real, real neat thing about my contract with Powerbills is they didn't have their own ball. They didn't have their own ball. I could play any ball I wanted, which was Titleist. I played that. Like at McGregor, uh, Jack was to play McGregor balls, but they used to carry these rings. Yeah. They used to have to put, now this is a, I don't know, Jack never told me, but they used to put, have to put a thousand balls through the ring to get him a dozen <laughs> of the McGregor, because they, they, they didn't have the technology, right? If you, if I used like the uh, 90 compression, he said, you're going to get between 85 and 95% right now. I said, they're not, they're not all going to be 90. And, and we all knew that. And uh, I'm not sure what, if we had to adjust or anything, but uh, that, that was the technology. It was as close as they could get. Mm-hmm. And everything is computerized today. I, I don't know how there's, but everything, I, I, I don't even know what I'm talking about, but I know it's all computerized. Yeah, so the quality so control's got to be better. Quality control is probably to the pinpoint. Yeah. Uh, one of my friends, I can't remember who it was, Dunlop wants me to play Dunlop ball, Frank, for 1500 I said, well, that's a nice price. But I said, you know as well as I do, Dave, uh, you, uh, one of those balls is going to fall out of the air on you before the round or whatever <laughs> tournament's over. I said, it might be on the last hole into the lake would cost you the tournament. But he didn't play. He played him six months. He said, no, I'm going back to tight list. <laughs> But the ones that were paid to play them, like the spa, they had to play a Spalding ball and a Wilson ball and, a, and the um, a McGregor ball. Uh, can't. But see, we, they got so many more companies today. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Karsten came out with the first. Um, Karsten came out with the first the perimeter weighty club, and he was an engineer, and not really. He played golf. He wasn't a golfer. And it was the worst looking club you've ever seen. <laughs> he got two or three of us young guys to putt in Phoenix where he made putters. And he brought out this first ping putter, the one he used to ping. Uh-huh. And he said, well, let's try it for a minute. So I tried it. And I tried it. I said, I said, I'll tell you what, that's the most solid putter I've ever hit. But I said, I couldn't stand to look at it, to be honest with you. It looked like a battleship. <laughs> but he had he'd overcome all of the problems of the center the, like the, I used a bullseye it, was mm-hmm. just, it had a sweet spot as good as any you could have as good as any today but you better not miss that sweet spot right and um, or you just get a god awful putt and t- today you can hit it almost they, they tell me I haven't stayed up with but um, you know almost anywhere on the face and get, <clears throat> get pretty accurate rolls so. Join us on the other side of a short break where we'll hear how Frank was introduced to his first wife by Tony Lima and his wife. We'll also continue our discussion on the equipment that Frank used while he was out on tour. The free tour backspin newsletter on Substack takes you inside the stories of the PGA Tour in the 1960s and the 1970s. Each week, your host Larry Bosch provides a legit, well-researched story from that era that shares some DNA with the tournament being currently played on the PGA Tour. The personalities of both the superstars and the journeyman pros are highlighted as Larry explains how they won a tour event. You can also test your golf course knowledge in the What Hole Is It contest where you have the chance to win a golf prize. Weigh in on the issues of the day on the PGA Tour in the Tour Backspin Poll, hear a specially curated Spotify playlist, view the fashions of the day, and a swing sequence of one of the stars of that era. See how Madison Avenue marketed the pros in the PGA Tour in a vintage ad and see the interesting and humorous posts from the social media corners of the internet. All this and more is available for free each week in the Tour Backspin newsletter on Substack. Find it at 
L-A-R-R-Y-B-A-U-S-H dot substack dot com. That's Larry Bosch dot substack dot com. Welcome back to the Tour Backspin Show. I'm your host, Larry Bosch, and today we're talking with Frank Beard. After writing Golfer's Gold, Tony uh, said that speaking into a tape recorder every night was therapeutic for him. Uh, did you find the same thing when you were recording your thoughts before sending them off to Dick Shop for your book, Pro? Uh, I don't know. I'm mean, very honest with you. I was drinking heavy in those days, so I was recording at night. And uh, I can get gregarious if you think I'm wandering around here today. <laughs> we put 250,000 words in the book, and we had two million laying on the floor. <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean talking? He said, just start talking. Just start talking. Tell me what happened today. Just today. Little stories, anything you want, but just make it today's because that's what we're going to label it. He said, I'll take care of the editing and I'll take care of everything. And he made it amazing. It was one of the best sports books I ever read. And even though I had a small part in it, Dick is a, a marvelous, marvelous editor and writer. Yes. Great humor and became a fast, fast friend of mine. Uh, I love that man. Well, that's fantastic. But uh, therapeutic, I don't know. I, <laughs> be very honest with you, Larry, in those days, not, the only therapy I used was alcohol. <laughs> well, i gotta, I got to tell you that I've had a lifelong fear of 18-inch pots ever since reading Pro. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to, unfortunately, so that's what sent a lot of, a lot of the guys home. Um, the old saying is the only thing... It, only sure death there's just dogs chasing cars and pros for <laughs> uh, Tell me about when Tony and his wife Betty introduced you to your first wife. Well, uh, Tony came into um, Chris Blocker and I was a good friend of mine, a young guy. Had not had the success that I had. We were just good friends. He was from Lubbock. I loved him. And uh, but he was he was a he, he was an out and about her a little bit. He played some of the girls. I really never had. I'd had a girlfriend at home and left her there and went on tour and, and really hadn't hooked up. With, I wasn't. I just I went home and, and on tour and I just went home and didn't drink. Didn't even have a beer. I think just watched television and ate dinner with the guys. But so anyway, we're sitting at, in in Fort Worth, Texas, at, just having lunch, and he walks in. And he said, "All right, guys, gotta have a favor." And um, we kind of looked at. I looked at him and like. There's, what the hell's Tony want from us? So he said, um, I, my wife's got this new friend that, that lives in our in apartment and uh, uh, lives in the apartment complex. And the airline stewardess, and she's a, a beauty queen, and and she want, we wanted to meet some golfers, and one of you two is going to take her a date on a date next week in New Orleans. So I just looked at Chris and I said, Chris, uh, and I said, that's about all I got out. And he said, no, I've got a girlfriend coming to New Orleans next week. Said, Tony looked at me and said, it's you, Frank. <laughs> and that was kind of sealed. Don't ask me how it was sealed. I, I just knew it was sealed. There was no way I was going to wangle around out of it. <laughs> so I met her down in New Orleans and went out to dinner with uh, she and Tony. And... Um, and she had to leave the next day on her flight or something. I don't know. So I met her then. And I'm not quite sure. Uh, she said, I'd like to see you again. I, I, I certainly didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> but some way we got phone numbers exchanged. We kind of called back and forth. And I can't remember where I saw her. We went from there. I think we went up to uh, Fort Worth in Dallas, I believe, uh, where she lived, the Tony lived. And I probably went out with her a couple of times there. And then. All I know is the next thing I know is six months later and I'm married. <laughs> Did you and the Lima's... I mean, it's almost the God honest truth. <laughs> Did you guys uh, socialize much on tour, uh, the Beards well, and the we Lima's? Had we, uh, we were good Catholics and we had four kids in five years, and which was um, wonderful. It's really the only good thing that came out of the marriage. The, the marriage was... And my drinking was as huge a factor as anything, but... She was way too young to be married and having kids and a mother, I mean. But anyway, um, we had those kids kind of fast, but we traveled in, uh, like, uh, Jimmy, Jimmy Colbert and Hobero Blackus and 
Dale Douglas and um, Charlie Cootie was my best friend. We all, they all had wives and kids traveling. And so we were with them. And the wives would get together and get us uh, some kitchenettes at like the Ramada Inn. That was the big time or holiday inn for us where we didn't stay. That was all, that was kind of semi top of the line anyway. So, and then the, the kids and the wives could socialize and that was it. So we actually socialized quite a bit. Wound up playing some cards together and, um, I don't know, it, just, it was a nice group of people. I enjoyed them a lot. I'm just fascinated by the car caravan and family uh, traveling and how, uh, you know, the men could do the cookouts, the women would share child care duties. It was just a different time then. Well, it, it, we traveled in a safari, so the tournaments were set up that way. I mean, I wasn't, well, well, I wasn't on an airplane. Well, I've been on an airplane, obviously, but I, on tour until 1963, last part of 63, when when I was my first full year, I'd be driven. I put 41,000 miles on my first um, rental car, lease Jeez. car, my sponsors got for me uh, in one year. And um, so, um, but we, we traveled from week to week to week to week. I mean, that was kind of, I don't know if it was set up on purpose that way, I hope it was. It was the tour, the tour just before I came on was very loosely. Uh, it wasn't a PGA tour. It was, it was, a, they called it the PGA tour, but it was run by the sections of the PGA of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the Texas Open, maybe run by the Northern section of the PGA of America. It started Phoenix and Tucson, all in, they all had sections. Mm-hmm. And they were overseen by, they, the sections were overseen by the PGA of America. But the, and then all of a sudden Palmer wins his second Masters. Um, and TV says, I'm sure I, nobody told me. I just, they just looked at you and said, look, what do we got here? Because all you saw then in those days, or way back then, was uh, the Open and the Masters on Saturday, Sunday, mm-hmm. maybe the best four holes. That was it. Yeah. So all of a sudden, television get in there, and, and now the PGA of America is trying to run this whole operation. Now they're trying to draw it tighter and have these contracts for a lot of money, and and that led us into the battle to, to split in about 66, 7, and 8, somewhere in there. Well, yeah, you uh, your first win um, at the Frank Sinatra Open in 63, uh, I kind of view as the opening act to that, that whole split because the PGA of America used their veto power to deny a spot for that tournament on the 64 schedule. And that set off the chain of events that eventually led to the formation of the tournament players division. Um, well, I was on the board when all that was happening. Mm-hmm. I can't remember if I was a board member or a, an advisor, a young, what they call, you know, young pros right. advisory. But I sat in all the men, uh, but Doug Ford, Bob Goldby and uh, Gardner Dickinson were kind of headed that up. Mm-hmm. And basically we just said, look, you guys at the PGA of America stay home in your pro shops and teach. You can't run this business out here. We're going to find somebody that can because this is our business. We don't sell gloves and balls and give teach lessons. Mm-hmm. And we we know we can, we can run it better than you can. Well, they, they weren't going to buy that at all. It was too much money and so we actually had the sponsors um, and the players uh, and um, the TV people all behind us. They said, we're going with you. We got to click on with the show. Mm-hmm. And um, it got up to the point we had lawyers and we were getting ready. To, I don't know. We had new names. And, and it was going to be a mess. It was going to be a mess for golf. And as always, as always. Nicholas especially, but Ed Palmer were smarter than all of us put together. In some way, they got with Mark McCormick in behind closed doors. The next thing you know, to come out with this, what we've got today, which is the PGA Tour as an ent- as, a, as an entity of the PGA of America. And if you looked at a, a, a what do you call it, would call it a, a, a corporate ladder, a corporate diagram of its company. Mm-hmm. PGA of America is up at the top, and it, it's got all its sections and whatever they've got. 
And over here, as an offshoot, just a little box down, it's a PGA Tour. But we set it up. I don't know the structure. I know the numerically the structure is pretty much the same today. But we had, um, I think we had four. We had um, seven, eight, or nine on the board. Of the board, five of them were PGA pros. I mean, um, playing pros. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Three of them were outside businessmen, like this fellow Dunn. Mm-hmm. That, uh, and then two of them were PGA of America. Oh, so we always had the we always had the plurality, the players, if we needed it, and we selected the outside businessmen. Although they didn't necessarily pledge allegiance, they were there for us. Mm-hmm. But PGA of America. Got, they got to keep. They kept their tournament, the PGA of America. And here's the kicker: <laughs> nobody knew it. Back in those days, the, the Ryder Cup was, you know, pretty well known, but it was more of an exhibition. Uh-huh. Not much of a TV draw. Well, look what it's the biggest TV show on, uh, other than the U.S. Open and Masters in, on golf. Right. <laughs> they kept that. Now they're laughing up their sleeve. But we got, we got what we wanted. We got control of the tour, and that's grown. I mean, out of sight. And we've gotten along pretty well since then, but it was acrimonious. I mean, it was a blood battle, 67, 8, right in there, whatever, whenever it started. Do you think that Tiger, do you think that Tiger Woods being named to the policy board, that new position that he's taken, is going to help smooth out some of the bumps that we've experienced in the last couple of years? I haven't seen that announcement. I, I mean, I don't think you're making it up. I just don't read much. Okay. I just watch. But uh, if he's if he's involved, it, it's powerful. Yeah. I mean, it's powerful. It's. Um, I mean, the fact that he's still number one money maker, um, pretty much almost anyway. Um, and uh, I know back in the TV days, um, what happened today if he came back? You tee off with Ernie L, turning off with McRoy and, and Rom, and, and they, they they draw pretty good today, but they, they draw about a two. Necklace's mm-hmm. group, I mean, uh, Tiger's group, if it, wherever it was, if they could get them, would be a seven. Yeah, I agree. When he shows up, those are pretty well known for when he shows up at the tournament, it goes from a two or three to a seven. Yeah. And though he's powerful, but I have not heard what you said, so. Speaking on your words, I would say yes. They can't do anything but help. It's certainly not going to hurt any. Yeah, because he's learned a lot. He's a smart man. He's got smart people around him, and um, he, but he he people listen to him, follow him, and uh, they like him. So, how did you play that year at Firestone in the '66 PGA Championship? I can't remember. Um, we always wanted to win Firestone. That was kind of like a <clears throat> what we we just started the TP the TPC in those days, tournament players to the championship, but it wasn't called a player, but it was the same tournament. Mm-hmm. And um, but the Akron was always special to everybody. I don't remember how I played. I, I'm I'm a trivia fact there. Um, in in uh, nineteen sixty. Uh, eight or nine, I can't remember, where Lee Elder, Jack Nicholas played off there for the championship. Mm-hmm. There was a third guy in the playoff. <laughs> and nobody would ever, I lost on the first hole. <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, I don't remember how I played, but I always played good there. Uh, I'd be surprised if I was out of the top 25 or uh, even out of the top 15. I loved it there. Oh, so were you a fan of Robert Trent Jones' courses? No. Okay. <laughs> absolutely hate them. This, this particular one, I don't know whether he, he took leave of his senses or what, <laughs> but it was just a beautifully designed golf course. I don't know what the hell got into him. Well, it was a re, it was a redesign by him. It wasn't a, a totally original design for him. So maybe that's no, no, maybe that was what it was. Yeah. <laughs> get his meat. There's nothing like. Um, uh, what do you call it at uh, Minneapolis? With, uh, Hazeltine. Hazeltine, the cow pasture. <laughs> that was a funny story. If I had 
Dave Hill called it the cow pasture. Yeah. So by finding 500, he said, you might as well make it 1,000 because I'm going to call it, I'm going to call it cow pasture again. <laughs> but it, no, I don't like, and I don't like Nicholas courses are very much like his. Yeah. I just really don't like them. They just, they don't, some way they lose the people that, who's, who's playing this for almost all of them. You're 300 members. They build them for 30 or 40 pros that might play a tournament there. Yeah. 10 or 15 members that can play it. Nobody can play them. Yeah. I mean, but anyway, that's another story. I'm not going down that road. We won't won't put too much vitriol on this. (laughs) That's right. Join us on the other side of the break as we talk with Frank about travel on tour in the 1960s and 70s and the friends he made while out on tour. Uncorked, the life and times of Champagne Tony Lima tells the story of one of the PGA Tour's biggest stars in the mid-1960s. A fascinating glimpse into the traveling caravan that was the tour during an era where the fields were full of madmen era personalities. From a hard-scrabbled youth spent on the wrong side of the tracks in the Oakland suburb of San Leandro, to the temptations of Elko, Nevada, to the bright lights of the PGA Tour, Uncork tells a story of determination, redemption, and above all else, a love story that documents how Betty, Tony's new wife, provided the direction and motivation for him to become a top star. Order your copy today on Amazon. Welcome back to the Tour Backspin Show. I'm your host, Larry Bosch, and today we're talking with Frank Beard. So how did you hear about the plane crash that took Tony and Betty's lives? Uh, it was just later that night after it happened. Yeah. I'm not quite sure where I was. I was drinking. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, I can't remember. Uh, uh, I was married at the time, so I think probably my wife, uh, you know, maybe Betty's... Uh, I don't know what our connection would have been, uh, other than the news. Maybe watch the TV. Uh, but I, if I had to bet, I'd say somebody called my wife from Betty's side of the family. Okay. But they actually had some other friends. She had a dear friend that lived in the same apartment complex. Uh, she didn't. My wife didn't live there anymore. But she kept in touch with, of course, Betty, but kept in touch with these this family that lived there, her husband and wife. And I bet she called. Because they were all three friends, and mm-hmm. I don't remember. But it was just, I mean, I don't know, what do you think? I don't even remember what I thought. And how close were you to Bobby Nichols with both of you coming from the same state? Uh, pretty close. He was older. Older made a big difference on yeah. the tour. Uh, not age-wise, just, just you came out with your friends. Mm-hmm. And you set your, kind of set your own group of friends that you were friendly with, and then the next younger look came out. You knew him. You treated him all right. But they weren't. They set their own group of guys. And Bobby and I were uh, from Louisville, although I didn't know him in Louisville. Mm-hmm. Uh, he already graduated from high school. He's four years old. He graduated from high school when I got there. And um, so, um, but I, of course, ran into him on tour. And we became pretty close friends. I wouldn't say, uh, I don't remember us having dinner with he and Nancy yet. Uh, but um, you know, he and I enjoyed playing with him. He was a nice guy, just a a friendly friend, a true gentleman, uh, a true gentleman, not a dear friend. But that just that comes from just getting thrown together with each other socially somewhere. Yeah. Right so, oh, and Nancy, she was a beauty queen there in Lowell, and, um, and Bobby was uh, wasn't called the prom king or anything, but he was he was big stuff. Yeah. It was big stuff, so that, that didn't surprise any of us when they got married. <laughs> did you enjoy your time as a golf analyst on ESPN? I did. It kept me close to the game. I um, got very frustrated with the production side of it. Um, there was too many slot holes and things you could and couldn't do. I remember the first uh, they asked me to do a tournament. I went to do it kind of an interview time. I did a tournament. We're out doing the rehearsal before the tournament starts. We're following, and I'm following Jim Dent, and I, and I make the comment, kind of, "This guy is really slow." And <laughs> boom, right in my ear, my producer, director, said, producer says, "Frank, we can't say that." I said, "What? Slow?" I said, "Well, he is." 
And he said, we know he is, but we can't say that. He said, what should I call it? He said, how about deliverance? <laughs> and I learned then, well, this is back, at, this, is, this is 1993. So I guess all the, the social media had started, I didn't know what it was or something. All this stuff had started today, the, the sexist stuff and all. You know who you can talk about. I don't. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, I remember Bob Murphy almost lost his job. It was the guy hit a ball up on the green and, and spun it almost off. And Bob said, "Boy, he really put a lot of jism on that one." <laughs> and they called him from they called him from Bristol. But jism jism is kind of known as men's semen some places. <laughs> I don't know, but Bob knew. I, <laughs> I don't just I thought, oh my God, what are we going? To... Oh man. When I talked to Al Geiberger, he spoke about how the pension system on the PGA tour, uh how the senior tour really kinda helped shore that up. Uh could you talk a little bit about that? How about the what? The pen the pension system for oh, the PGA well, we tour. Never could have a, we could never have a pen we tried for years to have a pension. We couldn't because we didn't have an employer. We were all self-employed. We couldn't. There was no. We have to have an employer and be an employee with uh, the W two forms and stuff like that. Um, and so, uh, you know, you just left your own, saved your own money. And um, so, just uh, just um, as the seniors came out, I don't remember exactly. I was I wasn't there when it first started in eighty two. I didn't play till eighty nine. But. Um, they, some way they got together with the board and they came out uh, before that. I anyway, somewhere in there, and of course I missed the first one. They just said, look, we're making so much money, why don't we just give it back to the players? And so they set up this uh, retirement plan where they, this, the, you were given points when you played, not for performance, uh, not for making the cut, just for seniors didn't have a cut. Um, maybe they did it for cuts on the tour, but they tried to keep away from performance. They just wanted to pay everybody the same. And um, you, you got paid for, for performance and your prize money. Mm-hmm. And at the, at the end of the year, they would decide, let's give the boys uh, $10 million this year. And you had accumulated points, a point for entering the tournament, maybe making the cut on the other tour, I don't know. And then that was about where it ended. And then he, those points were then attributed uh, divided the ten million, and that's what if you had a hundred points, you got whatever that uh, totaled up to. Mm-hmm. And they put it into an account. Uh, it's run. It was run from, uh, by Merrill Lynch for a while, but now it was run by now it's run by uh, Charles Schwab. And they had uh, ten, if I recall, eight or ten funds in this account. Let's say the Schwab funds, and, and everything from. Uh, almost a money market to drill it for oil on the moon. Whatever you know, they call them high caps, low cap. I don't know. And you could move, you could move the money around in that market, but you couldn't take it out till you were sixty-five. Mm-hmm. So you could lose it all if you want to, and if you took care of it, because you got a bunch every year. Um, and uh, you know, it was, um, I, I, I played three and a half years on the senior tour and had two hundred thousand when I left. Which was nothing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, these guys, Jimmy Powell, who played the, the senior tour from '82 on, when he was first put in, when he quit playing somewhere in there, uh, he, he was getting fifteen thousand a month from his retirement fund. Wow! I mean, on, that's nothing too. I don't even what they're getting today. I yeah. Mean, it's, but it was a, I guess, it was all the retirement fund. Uh, but we just funded it ourselves. Mm-hmm. They just took some, whatever they were, they just took the money they were making from TV and I don't know, the, the branding of the franchise branding and all that stuff. All this PGA Tour name and hats and shirts. I don't know. Right. They got money all over the place now. And um, so that was that. So I guess the senior tour got it started. I'm not sure. Are you uh, still playing? I play uh, oh about three times a week. I don't play. That's pretty good. Uh, I, I'm I'm losing interest because I just play so badly. It's almost it's embarrassing. I don't expect at 84 to shoot what I did even when I was 70. But the, mine's got, the curtain just came down. 
for the actors on the stage, the curtain's supposed to drop slowly while they get, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mine, mine went poop. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I like my friends. I'm a member of a nice club up here. And, and um, we play cards and bullshit and have fun. It's like they've taken me in as a member of the family. And I play about three times a week. And um, so, uh, I have, but I haven't played this summer much at all. It just got too hot for me. So yeah. I'm, I look forward to the season coming around again. And, yeah. So your health is good? It seems to be. At this point, there's nothing since the nick wrong. If you got another 45 minutes, I'll tell you about my aches and pains. <laughs> says, I said, if you don't call me, he said, if it comes and goes, don't call me. <laughs> this, my sister was a doctor in Dallas. She said, don't call me. She said, if it comes and stays, she said, we need to talk about it. But if it comes and goes, don't call me. Let's just talk about the Cowboys. <laughs> That's great. So, all, mostly mine comes, I got a bad back, but it, it's progressing, but it's just bad. As she said, after all these 70 years of doing what you did with the golf club and, and then gravity, you put gravity and we, lose, we all lose the gravity. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'm doing okay. I, mean, I don't know what God's got in hand. Maybe I'll drop dead today, but right now I'm feeling pretty good and looking forward to the season and and uh, God's been good to me. Well, I, that's I, great. I've left my whole life, my whole life. That's great. I really do appreciate the time you uh, you gave me today, and I would love to stay in touch. You just stay in touch. Thank you for spending some time with us listening to the Tour Backspin Show. We know your time is valuable, and we are grateful you chose to spend some of it with us. Be sure to check out the Tour Backspin newsletter on Substack at larrybosch.substack.com. Learn more about Tony Lima in my book, Uncork, The Life and Times of Champagne Tony Lima, available on Amazon. Our mission is to tell the stories of the PGA Tour in the 1960s and 70s and to highlight the personalities on the tour during that era. If you think this work is important, please consider subscribing to the podcast, the newsletter, or our YouTube channel, at Tour Backspin. Also, if you're looking for something fun, check out the Your Golfer's Almanac podcast. It's like an audio version of one of those 365-day desk calendars as host Michael Duranko celebrates birthdays, milestones, and other accomplishments in the world of golf history. You can find Your Golfer's Almanac on Apple Podcasts. The Tour Backspin Show is written, directed, and produced by Larry Bosch. The theme music for this week's episode is from the band Blue Wave Theory, and the song is titled Skyhawk Beach. Join us in a few weeks for our next episode of the Tour Backspin Show.